More than half of all companies globally are family-owned or operated. Family businesses contribute 70% of the world's GDP and account for 65% of jobs. Their voices are important. Their stories must be told. Brought to you by the award-winning publication, Tharavat Magazine. This is the Family Business Voice with your host, Ramya Elagami. On this episode of the Family Business Voice, we speak to author and family business coach Jonathan Goldhill about the unique hurdles next-gen family enterprise members face on their leadership journeys. Jonathan explains how next-gens can transcend these barriers by redefining how they measure success and the paradox of introducing disruptive tactics to stable, long-standing family business models. Enjoy this episode with Jonathan. Welcome to another episode of the Family Business Voice. I'm very pleased to welcome my guest today, Jonathan Goldhill. How are you? Very good, Ramia. Let's first of all, like delve a little bit into your own journey that brought you to the family enterprise conversation, which is a very personal journey because you actually were supposed to be, I guess, the next gen of a quite significant family legacy. And you happen to be the generation that sort of got the shorter end of the stick there because your predecessors decided to put an end to the enterprise. So tell us a little bit more about that experience. Yeah. So I actually was very fortunate to grow up in a affluent family and we had uh, a pretty incredible life, right? So my grandfather and his brothers created a men's clothing manufacturing business in the United States. And it grew quite large. I guess just to give some context here, it was a couple of thousand employees and about a million square feet of factory floor space, 500,000 of which was in one building. So we're talking about an enterprise that was a, a lot of scale. They were very successful. So what was interesting is that no only one of the brothers' children joined the business. So that's the third generation. And so what happened was the only other men that joined the business were in-laws. And none of the women, to my knowledge, were involved in the business whatsoever, which is, you know, I think kind of a statement of the times. So we're, we're talking 50s, 1950s, earlier 1940s. Anyway, so my father, who was a son-in-law, who had graduated Yale Law School, he was quite intelligent. He was young. He had already served in the Navy, and he hated practicing law. So he went in and joined the family business and principally became an account executive selling a, a line of an inferior line of men's suits that they created under their own label. And unfortunate set of circumstances, upon the birth of my mother's third child, which was me, my dad had a heart attack and was in, in the hospital. And he got well. A couple of years later, they went on vacation. They went to Greece and he had a second heart attack. And this time it didn't fare so well. And as I was described to me, you know, in 1960, my dad came back from Greece to New York in a box. Very traumatic, very life-changing set of circumstances. 
And now the family business has got one son from one of the brothers who was kind of the bean counter of the three brothers. He wasn't the uh, break down the doors entrepreneur. And then one other son-in-law who was so young, mid to late 20s, that I think the writing was on the wall at that point was, you know, for this company to continue, there would have to be a strong next generation leader. And so the story, as I've researched it, was that in 1969, when my grandfather was 70 and his older brother was probably 72, they sold the business. Now, what's very unusual was they were given lifetime employment contracts. And so they continued to run the business out of a showroom and executive offices in the middle of Manhattan in a in the Rockefeller Center building. So I really grew up in a very fortunate set of circumstances, but I would have loved to have been part of that family business and that legacy. And so I always felt a kinship with the business and was always interested in the notion that there was a family business. So when I went to business school just before joining the economic development firm, I was in my late 20s, and I had just come out of a failed art and clothing company. So literally picking up where my dad and my grandfather had left off, I had an artist as a partner who was painting on clothing. We called it wearable art. And it was, I thought, fabulously colorful. And I thought, like, this is my rocket ship. But this person was not family. This artist was someone who succinctly put was a womanizer, was a drug user, was irresponsible <laughs> financially. And when I went away to New York on a selling trip to sell our wares, I came back to find out that the bank account had been completely uh, obliterated by his cocaine <laughs> habit. And I thought, that's Jeez. it. I'm done. I'm, sh I'm shutting mm. this down. And I'm going to go back to business school to learn really how to be an entrepreneur. I'm going to study it. So you can see that the influence of my grandfather was pretty strong in my life. Being of another generation where I wasn't driven by economic circumstances, I didn't have to go out on the streets of New York City and peddle anything. And I could go out and kind of find my own path. And that's what I did. I, I moved to California when I was 20. Um, because I had a certain amount of financial freedom already. And I wanted to explore what life would be like on the other side of the United States. My first question to you here, Jonathan, really about like, if we're going to get into the whole successor discussion here, like, you know, do you really think the motivation has to be the same though? Like, isn't it actually also a healthy evolution that, not every generation should have to come from this survival and this fear of poverty. I feel like it's been a long, lifelong struggle, is that even though I set out on my own, and even though I blazed my own path, and even though I impressed my father-in-law, who is no longer in my life, but was for 20 years, and I impressed him, and he was a, he was a small business owner, quite successful, and he was impressed that I blazed a path into this coaching and consulting. And it's like, I mean, it was like 
gosh, I, he would have never thought to do anything like that after he sold his car dealerships and and was set financially. But I've always struggled with confidence and feeling successful because my measuring stick was a five foot two inch tall man who stood larger than life and was successful in the arts and philanthropy and business and and seemed like he had it all. The underside of that, by the way, was my mother was not thrilled with the parenting that she got from her mother and father. They weren't around that much. They were quite busy with their social calendars and probably business. She almost, my mother lived until her 90s, passed away a few years ago, but she always seemed like she struggled with a, a different form of attention deficit disorder. And I say a different form jokingly because she always seemed like she needed more attention. She wasn't getting enough attention in her life and she was hungry for it. And it seemed like that was a family of origin kind of issue. And so I've had incredible freedom and I've always struggled yet with feeling confident enough and successful enough. And I think I struggled with something that I only recognized and was told about after I published my book, which is called the imposter syndrome. And mm -hmm. you might be familiar with it. Very where familiar. You, <laughs> where you don't feel like you're good enough or you're worthy enough. And so I've been a business coach now since 2004. So that's 18 years, right? And or 19 or whatever. And then I was a business consultant for another 13 years before that. So, I mean, do the math. It's over 30 years of experience. I have my confidence now, but it wasn't probably until just the last couple of years where I really feel like I've blossomed with, with a book, with a podcast, with, a, with getting better clients and bigger clients and having more success stories. And I think my grandfather, he had a sense of self-confidence that was oftentimes buoyed up probably by his brothers and by the success of that business and by their circumstances drove them to become self-made and successful. And I've had to redefine success. Do you think it would have been different for you if that feeling, like if you felt like, you know, if the business had still been there and if maybe by experience you would have realized, well, I tried it, I didn't like it, and you would have then started your own career? Do you feel like that sense of not knowing had wow. an impact? I have no idea what might have happened if the if the business was still going and I was involved in it. I mean, I'm hardwired, at least now, to be thinking I would have gone off on my own. But I might have been an obnoxious, spoiled brat who, uh, <laughs> you know, who felt, you know, that I, I don't know that who felt that my success was just everything that was around me. I've seen some next gens of successful family business people who are marginally involved with the business and are buoyed up by the success of the, the social trappings they've grown up in. And I've seen others who didn't take it that way and were not involved and felt like there was maybe always a competition to participate. How do you feel we could potentially start changing that conversation for next gens? What's your stance on this and enlightening that burden? I think that rising gen, 
next generation leaders, and I'm principally in my mind picturing millennials 25 to 40, but because it's much harder, by the way, Rami, if the, if that next generation of a successful family business person is 50 to 60 years old and they're dealing with a, you know, a, a 70 to 80 year old parent who's still actively engaged and involved in the business. I only really like to coach like the 40 and under because it's more difficult to coach older people. It, they're slower to change. But I think that if you're, if the question is in my mind is how do they get to feel like they deserve their place in the business? And I think if I'm hearing the question correctly, I think the answer is, is they have to earn it. Um, I had guests on my show who are, are two sons running a family business in the East Coast, United States. And they gave me a good example of how they earned it in their business, which was that they put them, one put themselves in a revenue earning position where they were bringing business into the company. The other might have been more operationally focused, but it was about driving more profitability in the business. So you have to make a contribution to the top and or bottom line to be able to get instant recognizable, like, okay, this is a this is a kid that we need to contend with. And I'm 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 speaking as if I was, you know, a manager non-family member in the business looking at <laughs> this next gen and thinking wow. this kid might be my next boss and who is this you know punk of a kid so you, they have to earn <laughs> it and they have to also show humility which i think is a critical characteristic i always default to pat lencioni's ideal team player or humble hungry smart you might be familiar with it they have to be humble they have to show hunger and it's a different kind of hunger. It's a hunger for improving the profitability, improve, changing and bettering the processes, uh, making it so that the culture is sticky. I mean, uh, Jack Welch in one of his talks talks about creating sticky businesses. They have to make the business, the culture of the business stickier so that people want to stick around. And it's not going to be easy because if they are really going to be what I call a disruptive successor, some heads are going to roll, meaning not everyone who came on the ship to where they arrived at the point in time where the successor has taken over, not everyone's going on the next leg of the journey. They're just, they may not just be suited. And it, it sounds kind of Darwinian, because it sounds like you're basically going to be firing some of the old people and maybe it's because they can't learn the technology or they can't get the culture piece right or or maybe they're not really as productive as we thought they were and and suddenly they have to be accountable and and maybe to a different set of metrics including which of which might be measured using some sort of technology tool i mean it, it's difficult i think because a, a successor who's really disruptive has got an enormous burden on their shoulders to do it right and to do it right by all the stakeholders. And that includes their parents. What qualifies as a disruptive successor? Because right now I'm thinking of Elon Musk and I don't want to think about Elon Musk at well, all. And um, the way he's just taken as, over Twitter. Right. Well, I don't <laughs> think of him as a successor because right, he's not like it's not he's not the next generation leader. He is absolutely disruptive. And there's kind of no arguing with the profitability 
that he's generated for all the different companies. But there's a lot of pushback on the culture and the, you know, his new thing is everyone can work as much as they want from home, as long as they put 40 hours in the office. So I don't, I think of him as a disruptor, but I'm loosely defining disruptive successor. It's, it's an evolving definition for me, but it is specifically someone who's taking over as a next generation leader in a business that's going to be a family business. They are going to, at minimal, make some incremental improvements in people, processes, and profitability. They're going to probably insert technology that previously did not exist. That's everything from enterprise level tracking programs to uh, customer relationship management programs. And now they're going to have to make incremental changes to the way they measure employee engagement, customer satisfaction, uh, culture. And so those are at minimal things that they're going to have to do. And then by disruptive, it also might mean taking the company's strategy in a different direction and articulating that strategy. I'm working with one client now. He's a bit older. He took over his dad's business in the late 1990s when the products they were selling were all analog. The switch over to digital would have been an obvious one, but a non-disruptive successor would have ridden out that those analog products until the business got buried with their products, meaning it died. To be able to, if you're growing, you've got to be somewhat disruptive. And I think someone is, who's focused on growth is going to make that transition and any leaps to something new. So how do you raise kids in that environment in a way that they feel like, I love it, I want it to last, but I'm going to take a risk and I'm going to like, you know, like how, how do you suggest like parents do that? I think the parent's responsibility is to provide quality time in their children's lives. This could be done at the dinner table and to be a mentor and to be instructive. What I think the mistake is that I would imagine happens too much is that the child is caught up in what I would call a lot of tactical thinking and decision-making. And so they'll become very proficient in understanding tactically how to think through problems. But to really nurture an entrepreneurial spirit in your child, you, you're going to have to teach them to be more strategic. They got to understand finances for sure, which oftentimes is not a subject that's taught anywhere remotely in schools or anything, right? They're going to have to be taught to think strategically about the market and the markets and competition and where things are going. So they see big picture conversations and that they see the parents solving or hear of the parents solving big picture challenges instead of being, you know, seeing it as a blocker and, and getting stuck behind it. And then lastly, I think that a child needs to be given certain 
personal strategies for success. And that, to me, is around health, mental health, physical health, emotional health, like fitness, well-being, and exposure to diverse groups of people, diverse thinking, you know, so this, like to me, diversity, equity, and inclusion, which is probably mostly about people of color and people of different sex, sexual maybe orientations and genders. I think it's got to be also about different personality type, people from different walks of life, people from artists, engineers, business people. So I think you, there's a tremendous responsibility as a parent to raise your children in a way that also you don't put them down, you respect them and you engage them and you, you lift them up. That's your job as a parent, I think, is to let them stand on your shoulders until they're old enough, strong enough, large enough to stand on their own. Do you think your grandfather would understand what you're doing today? Would he be proud of uh, what you've done? You know, that's a really tough question because the last 10 years of his life, he had a series of strokes. And so my adult memories of him were of thinking that he had Alzheimer's disease and couldn't really, wouldn't understand much. But I think the earlier, younger, irascible and charming and a gregarious adult might have understood it. But like, you know, when my older brother went to him at the age of 20 or 21 for career advice, my grandfather couldn't have been less interested. He was too busy, too wrapped up. He was <laughs> taking phone calls at the table at a, a 21 club in, in Manhattan, uh, you know, fancy restaurant. And he was... My brother was felt like, wow, my grandfather couldn't care less about me. So, you know, mm. it's hard to say how he would have, it's you know, whether he say. would have evolved because uh, he was pretty caught up in himself. But he could have maybe done with reading your book, that's for sure, listening to your podcast. <laughs> so it's good to know that you're now helting other founders and uh, other next gens as well, like finding their way towards uh, feeling that they are where they deserve to be and that there's not just one path that leads to Rome, right, Jonathan? That's very important to repeat. There's not just one formula for success. Let's not forget that. Jonathan, thank you so much for being on the show with us. We really appreciate it. Thank you. I hope my contributions were good and that it contributed to a, a valuable dialogue. Thank you for listening to the Family Business Voice. Subscribe to our channels now on iTunes, TuneIn, Stitcher, or Spotify to be notified of our weekly episodes.